All right. Hello and welcome to episode 38 of the Strength Ratio podcast. I'm Zach Greenwald, joined as always by Kyle Klochenko. And we're joined this week by a special guest. We're joined by Max Ada. Max, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. So for those who don't know Max, Max has been coaching for nearly two decades. And Max, unlike, at least in our opinion, anyone else in our field, has the methodologies and technical awareness in both powerlifting and weightlifting at very high levels that I don't think is rivaled by anyone else. Uh, We have a lot of people in the sport of weightlifting who are technicians or have good grasp on programming uh, alone. They don't really dabble into weightlift, uh, into powerlifting and vice versa. You have the powerlifting technicians and, and those who are proficient with powerlifting who aren't well versed with the uh, level of technique uh, and perhaps the aspects of uh, um, athlete development that may differ in weightlifting. But Max, you you have both. And if you want to speak a little bit more about your uh, major mentors who perhaps have enabled you to work with athletes on such high levels in each respective sport to start, I think that would be great for our audience. Yeah. So, you know, my, my initial journey into weightlifting started when I was really young. Um, and, and I've, I've, I've worked with and had a few coaches myself, but, uh, I was, I was young when I started and I didn't really know a lot, uh, you know, as, as most people didn't back then, uh, the information that was available, the exchange of information and the resources were just really limited. Um, so my first coach, Steve Goff, um, his son was was you know hands down one of the best uh, ninety to ninety nine kilo lifters we've ever had in the country. Um, he was an Olympian, uh, had had the American records. Uh, you know his best lifts were like a one sixty seven and a half snatch and a two ten clean and jerk, I believe two twelve, uh, weighing ninety one. Um, and so he had a you know he had a very different philosophy than a lot of coaches at the time this is back in the late 80s early 90s when he took this on when i met him in the late 90s early 2000s um he had been doing basically this this you know as as we would call it today a bulgarian system um you know in which we we did a lot of we did only snatch clean and jerk front squat and some power snatch power clean and jerk so those five exercises that was it um no, no pulls, no presses, no general training, uh, no, no quote unquote technique work. Um, the theory and philosophy behind that was that, you know, we're only gonna, we're only gonna focus on specificity and overload. Um, and, and, you know, I got, I got really, really strong that way in the front squat. I got really, really strong at what I did, but, uh, you know, my, my snatch and clean jerk were terrible. Um, you know, uh, based on those numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, years went by training like that. Uh, I eventually ended up with, uh, Ivan Abijayev and the Bulgarians when they were here in the early part of maybe, God, it's almost 10 years ago now. Um, and, and the system was identical, uh, training from going from golf to Abijayev was literally, you know, it, it didn't feel any different, completely the same. Uh, but again, the same thing, a, a total focus on, on specificity, total focus on overload, just no real, no real structure outside of that. The goal was just basically drive the numbers up as hard as, as high as possible and, and push as hard as possible. Um, fast forward years later, uh, after getting injured and I ended up, uh, you know, trying some power lifting and, you know, when I got into powerlifting, I had a few coaches that kind of helped. I got some advice here and there from people, um, but none of it was really great. You know, back then, even that was this is probably like 2010. Uh, you know, powerlifting stuff was still West Side. West Side was humongous in powerlifting community. Everybody, everybody assumed that's what you did in powerlifting, um, and. And I was, you know, I came from a weightlifting background, so I was really curious to learn stuff from uh, the Russians because I know the Russians had great power. So I ended up connecting with Boris Sheko, um, and and learning a lot from him. And he was, 
I understood the system. You know, I had understood a lot of this stuff by then. Um, and, and getting his take on that, getting his application of that style of training for powerlifting was a real big eye opener for me in seeing how, you know, seeing how that Russian system of training was implemented for powerlifting gave me this like dramatic view of like, man, look how much I fucked up my weightlifting career <laughs> training the way I did because there are so many things that I could have alleviated back then if I had trained in a smarter way. Uh, so those guys were were really the three huge influences in, in they were catalysts for me learning and exploring different stuff and trying to really figure things out in a different way. Um, obviously in addition to a ton of other people I'd talked to and learned from. Um, but those three guys were like really instrumental because what they did, what they presented and what I learned, you know, whether it was good or bad, gave me a huge, a huge kind of epiphany moment of like, Oh wow. Like, you know, on, on the Abhijayev golf side, like I learned that, you know, the training can be very simple and, and the process is not nearly as important as other factors. Um, and their side with the Shaco stuff, it was like, oh, okay, you know, the, the program does have a massive impact on your results and the way you train has to be correct if you want, you know, top results. Uh, Max, I once heard you said, uh, I can't remember what podcast it was on that when you first started with, Boris, that uh, you basically took the program and doubled it because oh. of. So that. <laughs> so I actually got connected with Boris via Caleb Williams. He oh, yeah. uh, he had trained using his programs before, and he gave me a Master of Sport International class program that he had used. It was five <laughs> sessions a week. Each session took about three hours, um, and. I, this is like coming off of like, you know, I had been used to training with yeah. the Bulgarian style of, of, you know, maximum squat, you know, five, six times a day and, and just everything to maximum only singles. <laughs> and I, I would do it and the weights were so light that I was like, well, this is just, this is silly. Yeah. So I just like, well, I'll just do the same one. I'll just repeat it again in the afternoon, the whole workout. <laughs> so I would do the whole thing, you know, I would do this whole training cycle morning and night. Um, I felt amazing. I was super strong uh, doing that, but it was just, you know, after a while, the intensity starts to, to creep in and, and it just becomes the fatigue is too great. Um, so I, I did, I did learn that was actually right before I actually worked with Shaco. I was, I was doing his program. I was like, oh, this is great. I should contact the guy directly and actually see what I can get out of it. What, what did you tell him that you had done that? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I think he thought I was insane. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's kind of like when we talk to powerlifters who've only known what you had explained from Go and uh, Alajayev, and we talk about like phase potentiation and, and, and work capacity, and they're like, it's too light. And then before we know it, we, we look back at their load on the bar and they've, they've, they've doubled it and they're doing the, uh, doubles and triples again. Yeah. But, you know, a question that I have is when you were with, um, when you were with Abajayev and, uh, prior to that, when you were with Go, was there ever a time when, and, and I don't want this to sound like, like, well, it should have been obvious enough because I would imagine that there were lifters that you were surrounded by who had really good technique, uh, and perhaps there just wasn't a connection between aspects of strength and aspects of technique perhaps was the thinking that uh, eventually it would kind of fall into place if you were strong enough or some people or perhaps some of these Bulgarians eventually or had had in their past good technique coaches and now they just express their strength this way and you were coming in later not having had that technical foundation or did you just really fall in love with actually lifting heavy to where that's kind of the rabbit hole you went down. I sometimes see this with weightlifters where, and you see this with some programs where it's almost as if they train for the squat to be the third lift in competition. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think for one, I think I, I was just like, let's, I'll do whatever you tell me. Um, I, I've always been that, you know, uh, the anti, you know, the anti, so to speak, to get into the game is you have to work 
as hard as you possibly can. That's if you're not doing that, then you're not even you you're not actually doing anything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you just can't count yourself in the in the sport if you're not trying as hard as possible. Um, so you know, whatever a coach would tell me to do, I assumed I have to do that. You know, with 100% of my effort and commitment to do exactly what he's trying to get me to do. In in the sense that it was with golf, you know, it was the two of us, and I think what happened is you know, a lot of times we just kind of kept going down the road of, of, you know, if you've got, if all you've got is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Um, and so it's like, you know, trying to solve a shitty snatch with more front squatting just makes no sense. And, and it's very easy. And you see this a lot. This is really, really common in, in sports training. Um, you see it a lot where people make assumptions and connections and justifications for why they do things that are really just pulled out of thin air, you know, like, Oh, you know, I, we do this exercise cause it's going to make this happen, but you don't have any evidence to support that. And you don't even know if that's the case. You know, you see it all the time. Like we, you know, people will just make connections like doing, doing drop snatches makes you better at snatching or makes your overhead stronger. Uh-huh. maybe maybe not we don't really you know if you don't have actual evidence or data to support that you know you're just guessing uh, and that's a pretty basic connection but but you know there's a lot of that so you know i think the assumption was that as that the assumption is that if you're training if you're doing snatches and clean and jerks you're getting better at them because you're practicing them which is a falsehood um you, you don't i always try to, to to tell people that training is like you know, in a checkbook, the carbon copy, you know, you write on the paper. I don't even use that anymore, but you yeah. sign your name on the contract and then you peel off the white top uh, yeah. and there's a carbon copy underneath. Well, whatever you wrote on the top is going to get transferred to the bottom. No matter what you want it to be on the bottom, if you write the letter A on the top page, the letter A is going to be on the bottom page. You might want it to be a letter Z, but it's not going to. And and that was the intent. That was what would happen is whatever you're training, you're developing. So just because we were practicing snatch and clean jerk all the time did not mean I was getting better at them. And the reality is that the harder you train, the more intensely you train, just like the carbon copy, the harder you press on the page, the more intense the underlying letter is going to look, the more intense the, the transfer is. Same with weightlifting. The more intense we train, the more intense that crappy tra- uh, technique uh you know, was, was being transferred. And so, you know, what would happen is, okay, your technique's getting shittier because you're going heavy all the time. So we just keep pushing, going heavy, you know, it's this cycle, right? It just gets worse and worse and worse. Then you try to solve that problem by, well, it's got to be something like get stronger, get, you know, get this or get that. So it just became this kind of cyclical thing where, you know, we were chasing our tails, trying to fix a problem that we were creating for ourselves. And, and so the whole, the whole training system basically turned into this thing of, of just do the most you possibly can all the time and then justify that that's somehow going to work. And, you know, obviously, you know, two guys in a, in a room probably creates an echo chamber, but it's difficult to, it's difficult to break out of that cycle when there's no external people saying, Hey, you know, or no, no one to compare to and say, yeah, that's really stupid. You guys are not getting anywhere. Um, you know, and then it just turns into, like you said, like squatting is the sport, right? Yeah. Uh, cause, cause suddenly that's the thing that's going to fix everything. If you just front squat 285, you'll clean and jerk 170, no problem. Uh, <laughs> and, and you just find out like, you know, that's the, probably the stupidest way to go about that. So did you have Boris as that, at least perhaps built into his program, an aha moment as for how the technique fits into the equation? Did you arrive at this more just on your own after realizing that you had tried the latter and you had gotten super strong? So that was undoubtedly effective, but like you had mentioned, the technique uh, had things still uh, left to be worked on. There were, there were still things to be worked on. Um, yeah. After Boris and, and, and I know Kyle's curious about, uh, you know, the origins of your time with Juggernaut, uh, which we'll get into. But when did that technical exploration begin? 
Well, it, you know, it always existed. I think I knew – so going back to being an athlete versus being a coach, um, you, you're sabotaging yourself as an athlete if you, if you don't buy into what the coach is doing. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's, and you, that's a, you know, probably a topic for a whole podcast, but that's just a, the fastest way to sabotage yourself as an athlete is to, yeah. is to doubt your coach. And, and not to say that there shouldn't be times of reflection and to say, if your coach is doing a bad job, you know, you, you, you work with them to fix that. But you know, I, I bought in hundred percent. So that was, you've got to convince yourself, Hey, this is the way to do this because you're buying in. Right. Um, cause that can make and break, make or break a program. But what I knew going into things with Boris, what I already knew in general was that technique is, has to be developed. It's, there's a skill, but there's also, there's a component of technique that requires training. Um, you, you have to train your technique. You have to train your body to perform a certain way. Um, and there's, you know, Obviously, there's good ways and bad ways to go about that. There's, there's, well, maybe productive and unproductive ways. Obviously, I learned the unproductive way was was going as heavy as possible and deforming technique and destroying it with heavy weights and and really kind of never spending time to develop it. What I learned with Boris was that, and, and that whole system was that you know technique is something that there, there's this this accumulation necessary before there can be an intensification right when we would train with golf, with golf it was we just want to work on the most effective weights right 90 percent and above are effective so we'll use those and with boris there's an understanding like look let's accumulate your abilities first let's train the organism the body to have these skills to develop these movements to be strong in these positions and these muscle groups in a in a concentrated effort you know the squat bench or deadlift and then once you've accumulated this stable technique and stable situation then we start to intensify that and so a lot of it the best analogy i can give for that is if you imagine sharpening a knife right you're going to sharpen a knife the the first thing you do with a knife if it's really dull you don't you don't go right away to the really fine stone and sharpen it to a really fine edge because it's blunt you have to start with the rough stone and shape it roughly then get you know finer and finer and finer until you get a really sharp edge and so that that is how the training has to be you have to start with this general basic stuff and develop these things with sub-maximum weights, develop the skills with sub-maximum weights, tempo, timing, all these things. Then once that's solidified, once you've established that, boom, you sharpen it, you make this really, really fine point and peak, and you're and you're super good at it. Um, the the moment with him realizing that was that that process can can occur in a very subtle way throughout the entirety of training it's not two independent things getting strong and getting technique you know uh or developing technique they're the same thing and they have to be developed uh you know in parallel together uh what's the word cooperating with each other Mm -hmm. rather than you know it's a separate thing like being strong and having good technique are not two you know two sides of a coin they are the same thing and they need to be developed as the same so uh, what, what Zach was referring to with Juggernaut earlier was something I thought about is with the growth of, of Juggernaut and you guys being such a content producer, has that forced you to uh, really think about technical development to another degree and, and put your own kind of uh, language on it and really break it down in a way that then you can present it? Because um, I know you yeah. have the weightlifting t- technique triad, all the videos, things like that. Yeah, you know, a lot of that, I think that's the best, just like the the best way to learn how to do the lifts is to coach somebody else to do them, you know, because suddenly you realize like, well, I don't know what the hell you're supposed to do here in the middle, yeah. um, right? Like you can't say that to somebody and then turn around and think that you're going to do it right. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, like, like you're being put in a position where, okay, let's, you know, explain this concept to somebody and you start to do it and you're like, oh, I have some holes here in my knowledge. I need to fill that in. Or I wonder what belongs here or there. I, I'm, you know, you, you learn that and you start to realize like you're basically introspective and looking at your own knowledge. Mm-hmm. With Juggernaut, 
Chad has always been, you know, a huge supporter of me and, and, and has always been, you know, extremely helpful and, and positive in every way. He pushed me a lot to do that stuff, to write some things and, and get that out there. And it's, it's been a huge for both professionally and, uh, you know, personally a big development for me to have to sit down and start to think about that stuff. I always think that, okay, a lot of what I write now, I hope that in five years I look at and I'm like, that was, you know, I have 10 times the knowledge that I did then. Uh Um, you know, I, I, I was, I hope so. Uh, (laughs) I hope I don't, you know, five years down the road, I'm like, I figured it out back then. It's perfect. (laughs) Um, you know, and so, so, you know, doing that, like you said, you know, you sit there and you have to think about, okay, how do I actually explain this? What is it that I do? What's the process? What's, what is my understanding of this? And then go from there and actually find a way to explain these concepts to people, you know, cause you, everybody probably has a similar rough understanding of what they're doing, but to be able to sit down and explain it one in at all, explain it at all, but two, explain it in a way that other people understand it, uh, is, is a skill in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Do you feel, Max, that because sometimes it can be hard because, like you said, the practice requires this accumulation of time, uh, hopefully spent done correctly, uh, and, and it's a process that while subtle improvements may occur, it, it does take time. And I think you mm-hmm. don't really realize that until you yourself maybe start practicing another sport because coaches who have a, a larger training history – uh, or athletes themselves may not actually be able to coach the lifts. And this would be true of any uh, athlete coaching in any uh, or in their respective field is that they, they've almost forgotten what it was like to learn that high skill again. Um, do you feel like you ever catch yourself wanting the technique to come along? Because of course, some people are just going to get it better than others uh, at faster rates or do you have certain measurements to see okay well here's an objective way using video feedback that i can show that someone's improving because uh we're very close with uh uh, danny uh camargo and one thing that danny likes for example is looking at uh bar path and Mm -hmm. to tease out uh perhaps unnecessary uh nuance and individual difference with just well, what ultimately creates an efficient bar path. Um, and he shows people's progress, though it may be subtle, it seems much more easy to actually see visual improvements on with how he explains bar path. Do you have something similar in which you come back to or when you uh, show your athletes or if they're from a distance, because I know you do distance coaching, are there ways that you try to make them more self-actualizing with their technique? Yeah, for for sure. There's uh, the first thing that has to happen for that to be successful is the idea of a common glossary. Um, we everybody on the team has to understand what the terminology is. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something that's kind of frustrating. Is that there's a lot of coaches and a lot of people that come up with proprietary names or or come up with concepts and they explain them, you know, in different things rather than us all having a common jargon for the actual technique, but. We start with a common glossary explaining, you know, what I, when I say this, it means this. And everybody understands that. All the athletes grasp that those same words mean the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, from there, you know, the, the technique triad, I talk about this a little bit, but we talk about basically the, the, the different, um, the three different components of the lifts, right? The, the height of the bar, the time to fixation, uh, and then the trajectory, and and use those as a you know it's a rough framework for saying this is the area of the lift that's a problem yeah. right it may be coming down to a specific movement error or a specific you know in weight shift happening or something like that but understand that that's the area we're trying to develop that's the the concept we're trying to fix or or work at and then you know from there we try to first you know all technique starts with a conceptual model so we try to teach them what they're supposed to do. The first thing they have to do is understand what they're doing wrong and what they're supposed to be doing, what it's supposed to be like. Uh, so a drill I use a lot of times is to ask people to explain to me how the lift, you know, what the lift should look like, what, what should happen. Um, explain to me from 
an external perspective, what should a lifter do in the snatch or the clean? And then explain to me from an internal perspective, what do you do in the snatch and the clean, right? Um, And that gives me a sense as to quickly audit, hey, this person has no idea what their their feet do or no idea what their hands do, right? If they if they describe the snatch as like, I just pull as hard as possible and I close my eyes and I just pray that it gets there. Um, you know, we're pretty sure that a technique's going to look rough. Um, but those two tools give me a chance to quickly assess the conceptual model. Do they understand what they're trying to do? If they do, then the second thing to look at is, you know, once you have a good conceptual model is execution. Can they execute the lift properly? Can they execute their concept of the lift properly? Or are they incapable of doing that? Uh, or sorry, are they incapable of doing it because they possess muscular weaknesses? Or are they incapable of doing it because they don't possess the, the training or practice enough to make that movement happen? Uh, and then, you know, we go down the line. If, they, if it's not a muscular weakness, if they just don't understand how to do it correctly, or they understand what they're supposed to do, but they can't get it to happen then we address it with, you know, from that perspective, we address you know, lightweights and, and work on actually teaching them how to do it down the line. You know, if that happens, then the next thing we go to is, okay, you understand the concept, you've explained the lifts, you understand the, the, how to do that, you can make it happen, but at heavier weights, it's not possible. And so we, we've isolated that it's a, it's a muscular weakness. There's some kind of weakness. And the term muscular weakness, I think, may give the perception that, oh, if you just make your hamstring stronger, you'll lift more. It's more a matter of uh, uh, there's a training issue somewhere. They haven't trained themselves to be able to sustain or perform the movement properly, and it's a physiological issue. They need to increase physiological capacity to perform the lift properly. Then we you know, adjust the training program and find a suitable exercise that either augments the skill learning and develops some strength, or an exercise that's more skewed towards strength where it maybe augments just the strength qualities to a, or, you know, primarily the strength qualities to help alleviate that issue. And then we go from there. You know, I, I think what's so uh, important, at least two things that you, that you mentioned that I think can save so much uh, frustration on both parties, coach and athlete is the common language, the common uh, glossary yeah. and also the conceptual, because let's just say, uh, right, we, we say um, power position, like the contact position. Sure. Um, I know coaches have different names, but perhaps different ways of actually like showing where that is. Um, and tying that into if I if I say power position, like we have a, a group of lifters. Are they all in that same position? Do they not just know where that position is, uh, but do they know its significance and and, and where it plays into uh, the, uh, the importance of say bar propulsion. Uh, right. So even just like t- taking the time to talk to people about this, um, was just so helpful because people could say, Oh, well, this is where I have to actually make physical contact. I don't really have to, I, I shouldn't make contact elsewhere. And, and I have to make deliberate contact in a particular mm-hmm. way. And even just having that simple language began to save so much time. I remember um, what I've found as I've as I've been coaching weightlifting for some time now is that I've had a lot of people that I've looked up to and have begun to see like bigger concepts. But that's what I realized is that you would explain something uh, in terms of a correction or present a, a, a something a, as having been wrong, but you would explain why you were correcting it. I remember seeing in one instance an athlete uh, would snatch and they were dragging on their leg and you took that time to say, no, it's, it's just one spot and showed them like where the bar has to hit. And then you right. evidenced or not evidence, but just supporting information to how that bar propulsion alone is what makes weightlifting different than powerlifting or any other barbell activity. Uh, so that was really cool because it was just like this language and, and more just time focusing on, and it wasn't like, you're not like sitting down with your athletes and, and it's not like wasted training time. It's just like teaching, right? It's like on the moment teaching. Yeah. Uh, I, I really admired when I saw. Oh, cool. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it, it's taken a long time, I think, to get to those places where you develop, 
you know, you develop systems because they're, they're repeatable and they apply to everybody and they're, they're successful. And the beauty of a system and having a, a common glossary and a, a, an ecosystem for explaining things and, and, you know, delivering training and programming, all these things is superior to doing a one-off coaching for everybody. And it just, I'll just, I'll just make it work this guy and make it work on another guy. Because when you have a system, one small change and refinement of the system improves everybody across the board. Um, you know, when you keep refining the system and the, and the, the process, it gets better and better and better, and it just applies itself to everybody over and over again. Whereas if you just kind of hammer away at, I'll just try to correct this one guy and not really teach him anything or not really work on my system, then you end up in a place where you've got, you know, uh, you've got, uh, you know, basically <laughs> nothing, nothing to show for it, right? It's just a new one, a new person every time, a new, you know, coaching situation every time. Yeah, I, I think it was Chad who talked about the difference. I think it was on his beers. It was Chad podcast, the difference between systems and principles. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was really, really well said. Um, you, you want to maybe explain that really quickly? And just because you yeah. them there. I don't know exactly what he said, but, but I'm yeah. sure it's, it's very similar is that, um, you know, principles are, principles are, uh, uh, the underlying mechanisms by which things happen right the principle of specificity is universal uh it can be applied to every sport it can be identified in every training system you know so on and so forth systems are the manifestations of how people apply principles to a training program uh and systems are are going to be successful or unsuccessful based on their application of those principles yeah, that's, really uh, no, that's, that's awesome. Um, Max, would you say that because you, you, you had spent time training, and I think something that I realized that, um, and just watching you also as a coach in competition is that you, you, you are very passionate about the result and about winning, and you had wanted that for yourself on a very intense level such that you sought out these coaches, right? Um, pushed yourself truly as hard as you could. And it seems like, because at least for Kyle and myself, we had really gone down avenues of sport, although we train and we weight lift and we power lift and kind of do a more of a concurrent training model at the moment where we just hit everything, but, in, in a logical fashion, we sought to take, it was more like field sports. How far could we take that? And mm. that's where our passion lied. It seems like for you, it's, it's almost always been about either weight training or weightlifting. Uh, do you feel like that drive that you had as an athlete and perhaps not achieving, whether it was due to the technical uh, realizations coming too late or, or due to other confounding uh, variables do you do you feel like that uh time as an athlete has had a great impact on your coaching as i imagine it has and if so where, where do you feel like it's helped you uh, grow or connect with your own athletes yeah i mean I'll, I'll be totally honest uh i think that i think that you know everybody competes in sport to win if you're not trying to win you won't end up at the top levels of sport. It's too competitive. There's too many people trying too much. I think that a lot of coaches and a lot of people in athletics and, and, and they get into this because they're trying to satisfy something. Um, you know, it, it's very, it's very uncommon, I think, to find people in sports at the top level that are not on some level, you know, kind of messed up. <laughs> it might be an easy way to put it. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of hyper competitiveness. There's a lot of, you know, ego and drive. Um, I mean, it's literally, we're all going to show up at one place at one time and see who can lift the most weight over their head. Yeah. Right. Um, there's no fucking way you're going to tell me that, you know, there's people I'm just doing it for fun. There isn't because it's not fun. 
you know, at that level, it's not, it's not like a purely fun activity. Um, it doesn't mean you can't enjoy it and have fun in the process, but, but it is a, it is a, you know, it's a competition. Um, and so I think that, you know, having that drive as a coach, you have to, because you have to believe that you have to believe that you can win the competition because if you don't believe you can win, you wouldn't try to get any better. And if, as a coach, if you're not trying to get better, then you're going to have a really hard time being successful. So every athlete, every coach needs to believe that they can win and needs to be focused on the idea that they're going to win. Mm-hmm. The strategy that people apply, the way people go about that, you know, it can be very different. Not, not everybody has to be an asshole. You know, you can go in and, and compete and be a great sport and a positive, fun-loving person. But the intent has to be that, you know, I believe truly that I can outlift the person next to me. And I have to believe that I can get somebody to outlift, you know, the other guy's lifter. After the competition, everyone's friends, you know, I mean, we're, we're people still and, and we're good people still. So it's not that. It's just that you have to have that drive. Uh, if you, if you want to go anywhere, you know, uh, to, to the top levels. Um, and I think that most of the top coaches in the country feel that way, you know, whether they, whether they voice it or how they explain it, or maybe they, you know, some people might be kind of, you know, ashamed to feel that way or ashamed to feel that, Hey, I really want to win. Like that's, that's not like a great, you know, I don't, it's not a good attitude. Um, I think it's a fair attitude. I think it's just that you have to understand that, you can separate those things. Right. Uh, so it's it, it definitely my time as an athlete, you know, kind of having that, I want to say chip on your shoulder, but you know, a feeling of like, man, I didn't, I failed to get where I wanted as an athlete. You know, I got injured severely, but beyond that, I was just not good enough. And I want to try and do something better for somebody else because I do believe I have the ability to do that. I do believe in myself that I can get to that next place and I can get someone to that level. Now I have to try and do it. Um, so I, th- I think it's really important. I think it did shape a lot of what I do, how I think. And, and, you know, to some time, you know, to some degree, I will say the fault of that is a lot of times I don't, I don't do the, I'm not a big fan of the, the, I know it's the current state of the world that, you know, the congratulations and the constant, like the constant, you know, statements on the internet about how, how much everybody loves each other and how great, you know, this and that, like there's, there's, there's a lot of hyperbole and there's a lot of hype out there. Um, you know, my, my upbringing with golf, who was a, a Marine, um, you know, who served several tours in Vietnam and Abhijayev, who's, you know, <laughs> who literally, literally was like, you know, if you're not, if you're not winning, then I don't care about you. Um, you know, it was, was always that like, well, do your absolute best you know, and tomorrow's a new day. So do your best then too. Uh, you know, it's, you win and then you move on. You don't rest on that. You don't talk, you don't need to, to do the congratulations. People should know, you know, should know how good you are, should know how much you care about the people around you based on your actions, not the statements. There's a, there's a saying the Dutch have that, uh, I've, I heard this years ago, and, and it stuck with me forever. And this is like, I would say this is one of the mottos of my life is the saying goes, if it must be said, it's probably in doubt. Yeah. And, and I think you see that a lot, the, the constant, you know, having to reassure, reaffirm yourself or talk about this, or that, but you know, it's, it all kind of comes around full circle and the idea that, you know, winning is, is very, very important and you should embrace that. And you should embrace the idea that, if you believe you can win, you will try to do everything you can to improve yourself and your athletes to make that happen. So in, in sports in the U.S. and, of course, weightlifting has gained significant traction, significantly more traction in the past just even five years alone. But, you know, you have um, football players and basketball players and baseball players, these field sport athletes who are incentivized to perhaps see out those visions and compete to win without much regard for other lifestyle things, because they'll have, uh, say not just sponsorships, but they'll have, um, 
scholarships. There's there's some form of uh, financial uh, compensation or reward uh, where it seems to me that it would be easier for an athlete to perhaps confidently show that drive. Have you found it um, challenging to scout out if you have at any time in weightlifting or powerlifting, scout out that kind of athlete given that, right, this isn't uh, Soviet Russia when we're, we're just taking these kids. Um, although I think USA Weightlifting is doing a lot of great work to create systems for these athletes to grow. I, I think that mentality is one that I need to adopt more. Like ultimately this is a, a sport. It's a competition that we've set out to win. Um, it just seems challenging when these athletes are trying to balance uh, jobs and skills. I know at like these very, very elite levels too, some athletes are still students, right? They still have partners and things of the like. Uh, has that made it um, hard for you given that, personality that you have in that drive in yeah uh, how so hard to find athletes that have that drive or no no hard, hard perhaps to say like um which athlete has that ability to get to that next level they might not just have say like the environment around them to allow them to dive into it yeah i mean you know i think people often look at certain qualities and see talent um you know oh this guy's really explosive or this girl's really great positions or whatever um but that that only goes so far uh, and i know that sounds kind of strange but the reality is that the most talented individuals are the the people that that are are they're going to get into it and and they cannot live without doing better or winning um so so when you see when you see, you know, the super phenom guy or the super talented athletes come in, um, you don't know where they're going to be in six years or three years, right? They, they may come and go as a, in a flash when it gets hard. Uh, when you find athletes that have the emotional and, and psychological, you know, need to do better and to win – coupled with enough talent to succeed, those people will be around for years because they have to do it, right? They're, they're fixated on it. They cannot stop. They, they have to get to that next place. Um, and so, so, you know, you see a lot of times now with, with, you know, the idea, I think that, that we have a system that is, is, you know, throwing money to athletes and, and supporting them is awesome. And it's way better than it was before. Um, but I think there needs to be a, I, I think, you know, from a standpoint of like finding talent, identifying it, there needs to be a little bit more of a sort of withholding that and drawing out the long-term prospects better mm. so that you don't just have a, you know, throwing money at every flash in the pan. I'm not saying that's happening, but I can see where that would be a problem where if money is the sole motivator, you know, the people that are just barely able to get some of the money will come in and do it and, and kind of get a little bit of the fame and all this that it can be had, but they may not pan out to be the long-term prospect. We don't have the same system here that existed in, in Russia or China. Um, you know, we have a, I mean, for all intents and purposes, the U S system is very, very similar to the economic system here, this capitalism yeah. where, you know, may the best man win. Right. Um, you know, and in Russia and China, it's very different. It's not, you know, you see the same guys on the team all the time in those countries. Um, you know, if you look at China, like Lu Jun is going to the world championships. Yeah. That guy's, that guy's been on the team for a decade. So, so there must be other guys just as good, if not better, right? They must be. There's no way that there isn't another guy in China as good as him. Um, and we've seen, you know, the depth of talent they have. Why is that guy on the team every time? Right? Yeah. I mean, because because the other guys couldn't get on the team. <laughs> um, cause for whatever reason, that's the guy that they believe is going to be, be going all the way here. You know, you have people rotating all the time because it's a matter of who can make the total, who can do it when we say to do it, you know, and that's, it's harder. That's much more aggressive, much more, you know, uh, kind of 
sorry, you're out of luck. You didn't make the total. Yeah. Uh, you could be awesome. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know the situation, but if we look at the, the points now, the current ranking, right? If we just extrapolate that to what it's going to be at the Olympics, Robles is not in the top four. She's a defending world champion, Olympic medalist. If one or two other girls moves up above her and she doesn't improve, the potential that the world, the reigning world champion doesn't go to the Olympics is possible. Wow. Right? That's a very that's a very aggressive, very harsh, extremely competitive system compared to Lu Jun, you know, bombing at worlds, not, you know, not doing super well here and there. But now he's on the you know this world team, right? Um, so so I think the the I guess what I'm I kind of put on a tangent there, but the point being that a hyper competitive system, very much like the American economy, you know you know you can do whatever you want. It's open. Just hit these numbers, be the best, and you get to go. Draws out those kind of people, draws out the right personalities, the right kind of stuff, and motivates people. I think better than just saying hey. Here's a stipend. Work out really hard, and please show up with good results. Yeah, you know, it, it seems like the system at least is a bit better than it was not long ago. Mm-hmm. The previous quad, I, I think I, I took a look at you know, just different points that were awarded for different competitions, and different competitions had different tiers. I'm, I'm sure you you know this now quite well. Where it seems at least a little bit better thought out. I remember I was working with uh, Ariel Stevens trying to qualify. Mm-hmm. Um, well, she made it to Olympic trials, but it was basically like these, they were making meets for people to qualify at. Yeah. Yeah. But left and right. And I was like, what is this? This is crazy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's, it's funny. I've, I've talked to different coaches about that and some coaches will say, you know, that's retarded. This is terrible, right? You're, you're killing the athletes this is ridiculous. And other coaches will be like, this is the best thing ever. It should be more competitive, right? Just make every meet a qualifier. Uh, that's an exaggeration, but, but you know, it's, it's, it's two different philosophies, right? It's the, it's, you have to think about it. What kind of coach you are, what kind of person you are And this, this is probably a, a short tangent, but you know, especially coming from technique too, as well, developing technique, all of these things, everything we do as coaches or athletes and primarily as coaches the, from the way we start teaching athletes technique, you know, the way we create programs, the way we run our clubs, the way we operate our business, the way we do all these things, every single one of those things is a smaller component of our strategy. We believe our strategy is the best. And, and so we find the pieces to put together to fit our strategy and we hope that our strategy is the one that works, that takes us to the place we want to get to. You know, if you were to ask people in the NFL, you know, hey, who's the, what's the best program in the NFL? What's the best training program in the NFL? Well, what's the best, what's the best team? Well, it, it isn't always the same team, right? It's the people who have the best strategy and implement the best strategy and execute on it. Um, Russia, the Russian system, the Chinese system, the Bulgarian system, these are strategies. They're, they're very big strategies. How is a country going to win medals in weightlifting? Mm-hmm. Here's our strategy. And it's an encompassing of many, many, many factors. We saw the Russian strategy. You know, It's take drugs and find a way to hide the drug use for as long as you can. And then if that doesn't work, bribe your way back in, <laughs> right? So, yeah. you know, Bulgarian was the same. I'm sure the Chinese is also identical. It's, it's the same system over and over. It's the same strategy. It's just who can implement that version of it better. Yeah. yeah. Just like we have here, individual clubs and coaches have strategies that, that you know, they're going to they're gonna apply. So have you found even in just this short time, especially as you have – and you have been doing this for some time, taking athletes to these levels of, uh, you know, uh, world championships, uh, Pan American championships, etc. Have you found that your strategies have evolved? Whether that's in uh, relationships with uh, athletes, whether it's in perhaps the time spent on technique versus strength for a particular. Uh, 
athletes, where, where are you finding you're putting most of your thoughts in improving your systems at the moment? Yeah. So, so my overall strategy has basically remained the same, this quad based on the athletes I work with. So my strategy is not one to, you know, I don't have any youth lifters right now. Um, and I have a couple of junior lifters, but my strategy is not find young kids and develop them from that age. Uh Um, that, that wasn't the position I was in at the beginning of the quad. So the strategy I have is to take people that, you know, the, the athletes I have and, and we develop as much as we can. Much like you would, um, you know, much like you're, let's say you're investing for retiring, your priorities change as you get closer to retirement, right? So you, you know, you, you change things up as you go. Just like that in weightlifting, the strategy changes from the first day of the quad to the last few months of the quad because, okay, early on we can work on these technical deficiencies. We can spend a lot of time developing this. Um, we can work at, you know, general strength and other qualities and fixing your, you know, finding your body weight class, those things. But as we get closer to the competition or closer to the Olympics, you know, now we have to think about, okay, how does our strategy shift to maximize your ability to qualify, Mm -hmm. your ability to get on the team? Um, And so it's not just that the strategy sort of morphs, you know, throughout the quad, the components of it change too, because, okay, well, you know, the way we trained early in the quad worked very well for this you know, so now we have to change the training component because we need these qualities. Now that the Roby system is out and we have to do 1500 meets to get enough points, you know, okay, our training strategy has to change. Our training philosophy has to change because you need to be a different type of athlete to succeed and to thrive in this, in this current environment. So that component changes. The major thing I would say that's changed is that technique now is, is not on a back burner. Technique is the kind of thing that we have to find a more effective way to eliminate issues we have and develop the qualities we need so that we are not stuck in a place where we have to spend too much time between between competitions strength and output are still the are, are always going to be the number one priority in this current state and performance at meets is number one so technique has to reflect that and strength training has to reflect that we don't have 16 weeks between meets where we can spend a long time in a general phase doing high, high volumes of general exercises, we have to now shift gears to be much more of a higher intensity, more, you know, plateaued style system where our numbers have to remain high, as high as we can get them, uh, without a loss in, you know, without a, a degradation of technique between meet to meet and without a loss of strength between meet to meet. Uh, which is a challenging system, right? It's a challenging place to be. You have to be at top shape at several meets in a year. So there's not a lot of time to do a big buildup kind of phase, right? Yeah, and that also speaks to how, you know, you. I think anyone who's been around weightlifting long enough or been taking athletes to enough meets, you, you learn the benefits of, of, say, things like training partners and atmosphere. But perhaps where what you're going with Boris is that the, the role that programming has, like what, what we're talking about would all be implemented in one's programming strategy. Yes. And, and where you have all these variables uh, uh, compounding, I think it can be a lot. Um, and, and let's just say, you know, you're going through these periods where perhaps it's more just like a fine tooth comb with, with technique, if, if that's appropriate saying, at least when you said technique would go on the, the back burner. <laughs> Um, would you say it's kind of like that? Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, yeah, you know, it's it's a strategy, right? You have to sit down and say, hey, what is my be be honest with yourself, be honest with everything about what you're going to do, and your and your self audit of okay, how much can we accomplish if we focus on you know we've got six weeks to the next meet? Uh-huh. Should we step back and rebuild someone's snatch? probably not a good idea, right? Um, Which doesn't mean that we don't work on technique. You're always trying to perfect it. You're always cueing people. You're always coaching them. You're always trying to improve it. But there's no dedicated time where we we step back from the the process of developing results in in an effort to affect 
the performance of our lifts or the actual execution of our lifts because you don't have that luxury now. You just can't do that. And so, you know, hopefully you've set the foundation properly in the beginning so that you don't need a, a rebuilding of technique throughout the middle of the training, you know, quad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you're not screwed at the end where you, you could have made the Olympics, but your technique wasn't good enough to make those lifts. Um, you know, it's, it's a challenge. It's a, it's a, it's a challenge to sit there and be really honest with yourself and say, okay, what have we done? And if you're in a position where you didn't build a good enough foundation, the technique's not good enough, or it's getting worse, it's degrading because of how you're training and your contingency plan to fix it is going to cost you, you know, going to an international meet, you know, unfortunately you fucked up. And so hopefully you have a very creative, very successful solution to it. Otherwise you're just going to get what you get. Now, do you, do you have an approach say like in, in situations like this, or perhaps even uh, th- this could I think be gleamed for an audience that is in it for more aspects of fun with this approach to technique that can be done or seen as this accumulation of good reps. It takes much practice and that, you might have feedback over like a type of weight or a frequency with which someone can just keep up on this. That doesn't really affect the program. Uh, I don't know if your athletes ever just go in and like put in the reps to get certain feel or if it's all built into the program, but maybe you can just speak more about the athlete who has the conceptual they're on the plan, but perhaps they just need a little bit more practice ways of doing that, uh, pertaining to the yes. mode and frequency. So, uh, my model of, of determining where someone is with technique, you know, if we consider them, you, you have to, there's, there's stages, there's beginner, intermediate, advanced, a beginner is qualified is, you know, uh, we would, we would quantify a beginner as an athlete who would miss 10 lifts and every, you know, every single one of those misses could be a different mistake, a different error. They lack a conceptual model of what to do, and they can't execute the conceptual model they have. Um, their training should be comprised primarily of just learning the lifts, right? An intermediate level lifter is somebody who has, of out of, say, 10 misses, the same error occurring every time. They have a conceptual model. They have uh, a, an ability to execute that model, but they have a muscular weakness or a training weakness uh, that prevents them from executing one particular aspect of that. Uh, and then an advanced athlete is somebody who has uh, eliminated ma- basically most of those technical mistakes, and their technique is solidified. Solidified technique means that it is essentially unchanging, whether they take time away from it or not. Uh, they don't need consistent practice. doesn't mean that if you take time off and you come back and you're rusty, it just means that you know, if you were to not snatch, if you had snatched for 10 years and you didn't snatch for three years and came back to it, you would, you know, in a couple of workouts, you'd snatch exactly the same way you used to. Mm-hmm. Um, your technique is solidified. It's, it's highly resistant to decay. It's highly resistant to fatigue. Um, and the goal is for every athlete, you know, uh, a enthusiast or a person who's, you know, uh, fighting for a spot in the world team is to move from stage beginner to intermediate, intermediate to advanced. Once they reach the advanced stage and their technique is solidified, then the goal is to simply improve their physical results, you know, is to drive up their absolute strength, drive up the power they can generate, increase the snatch and clean and jerk numbers to the highest level. That that gap between beginner and advanced, that time frame for some people can be very short. That could happen in six weeks, six months, mm-hmm. right? Um, the harder they train, the, the more intense the weights they use and the more volume they do, the faster the, that process occurs. In my case, when I was young, that process probably took six weeks because we trained at maximum weights from day one, you know, and went as heavy as possible. And, and, you know, I went from beginner, different mistakes to intermediate, the same mistake to advanced, unchanging technique you know, still crappy, still bad technique, but I was, it was very solidified. It never changed, (laughs) um, really quickly because I had super intense weights. I ingrained that just like that carbon copy we talked about. Mm -hmm. I basically just grabbed a pen and scribbled a bunch of shit on a piece of paper and, you know, really, really dark carbon copy on their side. For some people that process could take a year and a half or two years or 
or four years, depending on the pace that you take when you go about it. And so with enthusiasts and people that are new or wanting to fix technique or work at it, the longer you spend as a beginner moving towards intermediate, moving towards advanced, the more time you should theoretically have to perfect the movements. Mm -hmm. If you take that process and try and spread it out over a longer period of time with lower intensity weights, you know, not super heavy lifts all the time, lower frequency, complete rest or close to complete rest before training sessions, you're probably going to end up with a much nicer, much more consistent technique as long as you have somebody who can teach it to you properly. Uh, but you know, the other side, obviously you get, you know, with me, you go super fast, you get a really, a really ingrained solidified technique super quickly may or may not be good. Mm. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like we now have, or at least I've heard of amongst coaches, these, uh, coaches who are like, they're good technical coaches or they're good programmers or they're good competition day coaches. But I like what you mentioned with the idea of, uh, print, uh, uh, uh strategies mm. and, and seeing how it all comes together under the context of just a specific circumstance. Right. Because right. now when I, when I see you at, at meets and we've shared platforms before, like basically the, the work has been done. You're, there to play the strategy game as the coach. The, yeah. the technique is there. I haven't heard you say much of anything at a, especially at national meets. Um, like it's just getting the, the athlete has to do their job and we just can't mess up their count. Right. Um, right. And it just seems like it, it's just this very big, important picture that a coach is responsible with that I think lends itself to the professionalism that you carry uh, and the awareness you have of the whole picture, because it is a lot to take in and a lot to pull together. And I haven't until you've mentioned uh, it on, on the show today, hear someone say that you should like the, the hazards of doubting a program. Mm. Cause usually we're like, well, how can we like meet people where they are or like, well, part of me is now thinking like they just kind of have to buy into the plan and just trust that we've put in the work to see them through the technical and the developmental all the way to competition day. I, that makes sense. There's just like this, I'm having this actualization around like the bigger coaching aspect of it all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and you know, part of that idea with buying in includes the process of, of, performance audits. Um, you know, the very first thing we try to do after a competition, and I mean like when you step off the platform, is we go somewhere quiet, me and, and JP or me and Joanne, whoever is coaching and the athlete, sit down and is immediately and we talk about what are the top three things that you did well, what are the bottom or the top three things that you did not do well, uh, and then the same. I say what I think the top three things they did well are and the bottom three, and then they say the same to me or, and, and my coach, right? So we assess ourselves, then we assess each other. Yeah. And that, that process has to be in place if you're going to buy in, because if you just buy in, which is what I did, if you just buy in and you don't sit down afterward and, and discuss what did and didn't go well, no one's going to get better. Um, so often, so, so often you see athletes jumping from coach to coach to coach. Yeah. Right. And, and the problem with that, I think it's, it's, it's fine enough as it is. That's okay. Athletes are 100% in control of their own life. No coach owns an athlete. Um, anyone that does probably shouldn't be coaching anymore, <laughs> but, but any coach, any, any athlete who jumps from coach to coach shorts themselves and their coach from continuing to develop a relationship in which both parties are focused on developing the process and the system. Mm -hmm. And we sit down plenty of times without an ego and talk to the athletes and they tell us things, Hey, you didn't do this well, or that was weird. Or, you know, you and JP are start arguing about the numbers and that made me all uncomfortable. We take all that information as, Hey, this is an opportunity for us to get better. Yeah. Um, one thing that Chad and I talk about a lot, and this is a big team culture thing for us, is leadership. And 
we we steal this from Jack Clark. Uh, if you haven't seen the Drug Life podcast with Jack Clark, you should watch it. Um, but uh, uh, Jack Clark, you know, he says leadership is the act of making everyone around you more productive. And because we define it as that, we can require everybody on the team has has to be a leader. Mm-hmm. You have to work to make everyone around you more productive. That can look a hundred different ways for a hundred different people. But this process allows us to do that. When they tell us what's right and wrong, we take that as a chance for us to become more productive, a chance for us to be better. When I tell them what I think they did right and wrong, it's not a matter of trying to control them or prove that I'm smarter or in, or in charge. It's a matter of saying, hey, if you want to do better next time, you have to admit that your mental game is not strong because that's the first step in changing it, right? And, and whatever it is, but that process has to take place if you want complete buy-in because if you don't have complete or if you, ha- you don't have that, buy-in just becomes you know, like a, a dogma, which eventually ends in somebody hating you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And well, I, so I, if I were to take a step back and say the, the importance of having buy-in around just good communication. And, and I love that, that definition of leadership that, and I remember that podcast. It was, it was amazing. Yeah. Just, you know, now that we're, we've gone into speaking about competition settings and, and coaching there, uh, just a, a funny anecdote. And I, not even sure you were aware of this, but it was just a, there are, there are these moments sometimes in competition when things are intense. This was an A session in nationals last year or maybe the year prior. And there was just this really great moment. And I'll never forget this where uh, Joe was with you in the back and Chad was there as well. And the first thing we had to do was try to like figure out how we were just going to be on the platform with Chad there. Cause like that alone challenging enough. And, and to that same point, there was this moment where uh, one, my coach, my co-coach and, and you were both counting, relaying back and forth. And, and you relayed something, something back to Joe or count or wait. And Joe asked Chad for the small greens and had to make a note that he, she wasn't referring to the tens, but instead to the ones. <laughs> that, that, the, the 10 kilo plates are the the bigger green plates and with Chad's size, the joke that yeah. she'd want him to mistake for the tiny one kilo plates, which, which is what you'd called for. Um, so That's awesome. yeah, it was just this really great moment in, in the midst of all of that. Cause it really is, especially in, in those, like in those a sessions. And I can't imagine all the more in the international meet you, you, you feel like it's this gladiator like <laughs> you're in the back. You can't see what's out there or at least you're not yet seeing what's out there. And, and, and the buildup is just so awesome. It's, it's yeah. hard to describe. And, and, and to have little moments like that along the way, just, yeah, I, I won't ever forget that. Um, so, Max, just being respectful of your time, I, I, I think that that last bit about leadership sums it up uh, beautifully. And I think a lot of coaches and athletes alike will learn from that. I uh, just wanted to say, Thank you so much for, for coming on. Kyle, do you have any other? Yeah, I just want to say uh, thanks for coming on, Max. That was a really good conversation. And and, and our audience who hasn't uh, who haven't uh, tuned in, definitely listen to the Jug Life podcast. Uh, Max's book, The Weightlifting Triad, that can be found uh, at juggernauttrainingsystems.com. We'll, we'll link all of that as well. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, you're, you're preparing pretty soon for Worlds, aren't you, Max? I fly out in a few hours for Germany. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna. Say, yeah. I was like, you can't do after this date. I was like, "Yep, that's when worlds are." <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate that. Oh yeah, and thank thank you for the time, and, and best of luck uh, at worlds for sure. Thank you.